Thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right. Uh, listen up. Really cool thing next week. Now, is everybody paying attention? In fact, is, would you take a note on this? Because I want to get it. We want to send out a, a special email about this. Next week, next week, the, uh, the I don't know what you call it, young adult, what is, it's called Holy Spirit, but the Light for the World HS Band, Holy Spirit Band, is the one that's going to be doing worship for us. They are having a conference on Friday, Saturday, and they're going to leave their stuff up, and then they're going to do uh, the worship. And I'm really looking forward to it. Um, just do me a favor, come early, okay? Be here so that you can enjoy it and get the whole feel of the set. Uh, it's going to be really good, okay? It's really good. All right, so with that in mind, that's it. And now we're starting. So uh, clock guys and camera, and I'm just waiting for somebody. It's super dark back there. Can somebody, can we put a little more light in the back? Okay, let there be light, okay? All right, all right. So are we ready? Tell me when we're ready. Somebody's got to give me a heads up. All right, welcome to those who are streaming. I know you're having fun on vacation. Enjoy, have fun. Uh, this is, this is, <laughs> frankly, this is a super important sermon. Uh, it's not necessarily the way I always want to go in the summer, but I'm telling you, this is where the Lord led me, and I think you're going to enjoy it. It's, it's incredible. So with that in mind, here's the question that we're starting ourselves with, and I'm doing this. Who is God to you? Okay? I want to ask this question. Is he friend? Is he loving father? Is he hard? Is he holy God? Now, I just, want to, I just want to ask this question. Think about it. If you're going through a difficult time in your life, right? If he's your friend, what are you, what are you expecting out of a friend? A shoulder, right? That's what you're expecting out of a friend. You're expecting a shoulder. If you're looking for a loving father, what are you expecting? wisdom, good advice, and you know that dads have that way of understanding that you may need to go through something difficult in order to be matured, right? Hard. Well, wait a minute, why is that blong up there? Because we understand God is friend, loving, and holy, but hard? I'm gonna, by the time we get done today, you're going to see that there is, a, there is a, a thing about that that is hard. It's not that God himself is hard, it's that we are. And so there's a thing that happens in there. And so if, if God is somebody who to you has been hard, then you will say to yourself about a difficult time, well, I'm reaping what I sowed, right? I sinned, I did something wrong, and God's just paying me back. Now that is not so God, but okay, even though you do reap what you sow. If it's a holy God, then basically you say something like this to yourself, see? Your understanding of God is impacting how you're interpreting what's happening to you. And if it's a holy God, you say something like this. If that holiness is what you're really about, then you say, I am a sinner deserving of punishment. Deserving of, you see what I mean? And yes, I get grace, but that's what's going on here. You see it? So I, I, want, you to, I want you to just put that in your head. I want you to think about this. But what I want to show you is, is that this is more complicated. And now follow the transition here. Okay, I'm going to use a verse, I'm going to be using an example here throughout the sermon of a way that we as Christians understand even the scripture 
in a way that is actually, see right here, if, if, watch this. Friend and loving father. If I were to go to most of the room here and I would say, which ones do you identify with most? Most American Christians are going to hit on those first two. They're going to say holy, holy God too. Hard, they're hard, very few are going to say that unless you're being honest. There's some people who just feel like God is hard all the time. So people do feel these ways. But the point is, is most people would identify as, well, he's friend and loving father. So I'm going to give you a scripture right now that I want you to try and interpret as friend and loving father because of the way that we interpret it. We're going to work on this throughout the sermon. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There's several people in here that have been divorced and remarried, and that's a tough scripture. That's a tough scripture. Tell me how you handle that as friend. How, how, do, you make, how, do, you, how do you get an interpretation of that that is consistent with friend? How do you get a consistent uh, one that's loving father? Love, not so much. Father, maybe, if you think of him in a hard way. Hard, that's hard. Okay? Holy, I get it. That's what he says. It's, that's, he, you know, me, I'm not. Right? You, you see it? And, and I want to show you, I just want to tell you just a little bit of foreshadow. That is what it is. That's what it says. You can't make the Bible say something it doesn't say. Wait a minute. Let me change that. People do it all the time. <laughs> People make the Bible say things that it's not actually saying just regularly. <laughs> it's like sport anymore. And it's not just Christians that do it. The world is having a heyday with it. The Bible says this, so you ought to be this. Thank you very much. I didn't know that. <laughs> so the bottom line is, is that we've got a really difficult problem here because God is friend. And he is loving father. But this is hard, and some things are. But he's also holy. What does all this mean? And I want to present to you something here. That's okay. But what if all of these are actually God? This is what I've been saying. And in fact, what I'm really trying to say is, is what if real love, God's deeper, richer, infinitely fuller love, encompasses all of that? Holiness, difficult, friend, father. What if it encompasses all of that, real love? And let me just really bring it home in ways the world that Christians, the world and Christians don't get. What if there, here's what we're really going after today. Remember the original question was, who is God to you? I want to just lovingly suggest to you something. As much as you know him, as many people in this room have walked with the Lord for a very long time, and you have a very deep and good and strong understanding of him, and, and you, you are, you know, none of us are at 100%, so you're somewhere in the, what, high 60s, 70s, 80s, something like that, you know, really, honestly, you know, compared to what we're going to get, I mean, compared to everything that God is, we're at, what, 3 or 4%? Right? But, you know, compared to what people are going to get out of life and so on, you can say, you're in these places, but I want to propose something to you today that God is making me preach this sermon, and I'm happy to do so, so don't misunderstand when I say making me, but I think that God really wants us to see something about himself today that we maybe don't see, or that maybe think that we see, but there's actually something much better behind how we think about him. You see it? See where we're going? 
So we're doing this. Now, Zach, who is getting preached next week, and he's going to do Ten Commandments, and this is the perfect setup for that sermon, and I've already heard part of the sermon, and so far where he's going with it, I'm like, I cannot wait, okay? I'm really happy about it. So, Zach, lift up this sermon, lift up another church. Lord, we come to you in the powerful name of Jesus, and I think if we were to sum it up, what we want is just more exposure. We want you to expose yourself to us and to open up our uh, understanding of who you are at your heart level and what you want to say to us in fullness. So we, we capture who you are in entirety to the best of our abilities. So Holy Spirit, we invite you here as the great teacher. We lift up to you our pastor who is delivering this message. We ask that you just infuse and empower and anoint him to say what you want him to say. Amen. And we ask that we have ears to hear and a heart to receive. And we just pray, Lord, honestly, we want to pray for home churches too, all Amen. across the country. Amen. We want to pray that the fruit that you want to bear through the transitions of what's happening throughout the ecumenical church at large, that you would be... Um, inspiring and equipping and quickening all those leaders and the Amen. people that are involved in it. In Jesus' precious name, amen. amen. Great prayer. Thank you, Zach. Uh, by the way, I want to say something. Zach is preaching next week, and many of you might have noticed something, which is we have a tradition that we've, not a tradition, we have a way of doing things around here that we established many, many years ago, and that is people from the congregation preach regularly here. Ever since my sabbatical, We've been sort of experimenting with a preach team. Not experiment, that's the wrong word again. But what we've been doing is, is establishing a preach team. Um, I, can I just say something that's really important? I love to preach. Okay, this is just a little inside baseball. It's not the sermon. But I love to preach. And if you put me up here every single Sunday, it's very stressful and very hard on me. But I'm in my wheelhouse. This is where I like to be. But I have a problem. And then it has to do with what you just prayed. I think that God is starting to do something very different with the church in this day and age. I think he's trying to spread things. Even on our worship team, we're doing things and experimenting with things where we have more than one leader at a time in order to spread out who's leading worship. And what I'm seeing across the body of Christ is that when people are distributing, it's not one person, when they're distributing to various people, that God's anointing is in there. We have had the most extraordinary sermons from people from our congregation. I really think some of the very best sermons ever preached in this building have been preached by people that have never preached before. I believe in this. And I think God's trying to do that. So I, wanna, I, want, us to have a, I want us to have people that we can sort of rely on. Is that the wrong word? It is. But I also want us, we're going to be now, from here, we, I tried this out for a few months. We're still doing it. And uh, Justine and Kevin are the primary ones. Robert is too, but Robert is headed to uh, California for a little while to get married, which is phenomenal. And uh, anyway, so the bottom line is, is that, uh, you know, we're going to be trying to find the Lord in this way that I think he wants to do church differently. Okay? So I'm asking for grace, but I'm also asking for prayer, okay, because some people would prefer I preach all the time. Some people would really prefer I don't, so it works out good for you, okay, but you understand? 
Okay, are we all good? So we're, like I said, we're going to start sitting forward in your chairs because I'm going to be asking people again from the congregation to be preaching fairly regularly. Okay, I, as I look out there, I see so many people that I want to ask. So uh, with that, uh, could you guys hit the clock for me? Thanks. All right. So, all right, so here we are. We're in Exodus. Now I'm back to sermon. We're in Exodus, and what we're doing is, is that this is God making a people that were enslaved in, in Egypt. They were supposed to be his people, but they didn't know what that meant. He was with their, you know, their ancestors 400 years ago, but here they are 400 years later as slaves, and who's God to them? And so now he's making them his people. And he starts off by doing the 10 miracles and the 10 plagues with that final one that's so amazing and the amazing thing that happens on Passover where he passes over the Jewish homes and so on. And then they go out with a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And they go to this cul-de-sac at the Red Sea. And then it opens up and they go through the Red Sea. And you would, you would have thought, as we talked about last week, you would have thought that walking in the middle of a sea on dry land would have been the kind of thing that would change you forever. You would think that, wouldn't you? Don't you think that you'd be different when you came up the other side of that? Particularly when you saw the waters fall on all of your enemies, wiping out the fear and the, the people that were coming after you. Don't you think that that would make you feel differently about everything? The problem is it just doesn't work that way. So watch as God is trying to be, make his people his people. So here's the first thing that happens after that. When they came to the oasis at Marah, the water was too bitter to drink, so they called the place Marah, which means bitter. Then the people complained and turned to Moses, complained, and turned to Moses, what are we going to drink? They demanded. So Moses cried out to the Lord for help, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Moses threw it into the water, and this made the water good to drink. Okay? So there's all of this is correlatable, not correlatable, all of this is fulfilled by Jesus like we looked at last week. But I'm going to leave that for you. This is Jesus taking the bitterness of our lives and taking it to sweet places. I'm going to leave all of that connection to Christ for you to go after because I want you to see what God's trying to do with the Israelites because it's what he's trying to do with us, and that is show us who he is. So I want to stick with what's happening. So this is what it is. Now watch. Here's what the Lord's saying. I am not just the God of the extraordinary, huge miracles that you saw in Egypt and in the Red Sea. That's not all that I am. I am the God that knows your every personal, deep, intimate need. There's three, two to three million Jewish people. And God knows your need. And your need. And your need. You see it? What he's trying to do is he's trying to take it from God being big, which he is, to also understanding that he's meeting your needs, the ones that you're having every day, okay? So that's the first thing, okay? And what he's trying to say to them is, I provide for all of it. And here's the response that he's hoping to get from us when he does that. He's wanting us to say, hallelujah, praise God forever, <laughs> right? When we find out he does big things and immediate intimate things, we should be saying, I got it, I trust you. Hallelujah, thank you, God. I worship you. That's what he's hoping for. What does he get? Now watch. To show you that he's actually doing what I'm saying he's doing. Listen to the wording here. It was there at Mara that the Lord set before them the following decrees as a standard to, to test them. Do you see what he's doing with this? He's testing them. 
He wants them to, what does test mean? It means he wants them to see who they are relative to who they should know him to be. So he's testing their faithfulness to him. He said, if you listen, if, now listen, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, whose sight? If you will do whatever you think is the right thing to do and you really mean it, you're terribly sincere about it, and it truly, really feels right to you, then surely that's got to be right because we're the judge of that. But what he says actually is, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what's right in his sight, obeying his commands, keeping all his decrees, then I will not make you suffer the diseases I sent to the Egypts. I'm the Lord who heals you. What I want to do is heal you. Uh, really important point right now because this is huge in the world right now. What the world wants is for Christians especially to love them in what they are. I'm here to tell you, thank God that he didn't love me in what I was. You wouldn't like me. Okay? What he did was change me into what he had for me to be that was better than anything I could have, would have, and wanted for myself. This is what he's going, what's going on here. This, it's his love to change us into what he, the creator, made us to be. <laughs> this is not complicated stuff. But yet we're losing the point of it. And not just the world is asking us to do this. Christians are all the time. You'll hear Christians say right now, I was just told to love. I'm just going to love. That's all I'm going to do. I'm just going to love. And why are you getting in my face about me loving? Do you see it? Now, the truth is we're supposed to love. That's true. God is love. And we're supposed to be like God. It's just what does love mean? Really? And let me say it this way. Here's what the world wants us to make love say. Tolerance. Do you know the Bible never says that God is tolerant? In fact, it says the exact opposite of that. God is not tolerant at all. <laughs> what he is is long-suffering. He's very patient. He's loving. As he continues to try and get you to understand your need for him to save, to change, to make new. You see it? We get it? Okay. It's if the condition is if you will do these things, and what is his things? His things, his things, his things. If you'll let him decide what's right for you. He made you. Maybe he knows something about you you don't. <laughs> I can promise you there isn't something that you know about yourself that he doesn't. Now think about that for a second. That means he knows everything. He knows everything about you in ways that you haven't even begun to understand about yourself, right? That's the beauty of the Lord. His, the depths of his intimacy and the way that he knows us is infinitely past how we know ourselves. He's just trying to get us to understand the need for help, a Savior. Then the whole community of Israel sets out from Elam, and they journey into the wilderness of Sin, that's Zinsin, between Elam and Mount Sinai. And they arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one month after the legal land of Egypt. There too, the whole community of Israel. Why don't they just do this? Hey, God, we're running out of food. Hey, Moses. They don't even have to talk to God. Hey, Moses, we're running out of food. You know the God who's done all these miracles? 
what, what are we supposed to do? Why isn't that an acceptable, proper, right response? Why isn't that? This is the response God's hoping for. But instead they complain about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt. <laughs> do you think they understand who God is yet? <laughs> is that who he is? If only he killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. <laughs> we set pots and filled with meat and we ate all the bread we wanted. But now you've brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. Yeah, that's exactly what God was doing. So let's do it. All right. Then the Lord said to Moses, look, I'm going to rain food down from heaven for you. Each day the people can go out and pick up as much food as they need for the day. But now watch. Look at this phrasing. It goes all the way through this. I will test them in this to see whether or not. They'll follow my instructions is the wording, but here's what the heart is. Whether or not they'll ever come to understand who I am and start responding in a way that is relational, true to who I am, and true to who they actually are. You see it? This is what he's trying to get to. It's not happening, but they're trying to get to that. So let's look at the instructions that he gave about one part of it, the manna. Here's the first instruction, okay? Manna is this, it, it comes down in the morning. There's a dew, and as the dew lifts, there's a flaky substance left behind. And what they're told to do is to go out and gather it. And in particular, what they're told to do is to gather two quarts. That what he's going to give for every person, God's going to give two quarts to every person. Now, if you're talking about intimate need, okay, watch this. This is the coolest thing. I don't know if you've ever seen this miracle, but this is cool. You're supposed to gather two quarts. Now, watch what happens. So the people of Israel did as they were told. Some gathered a lot and some gathered only a little. But when they measured it, everyone had just enough. Everyone had two quarts. Whether they collected a lot or a little, it turned out they had two quarts. You see that? Does God know what you need? Is he giving it to you? What are you supposed to be getting from this? What are you supposed to be learning? God knows you need two quarts. <laughs> See it? Those who got a lot had nothing left over. Those who got it only a little had enough. Each family had exactly what it needed. Now, here's what God's doing right there. I've asked you to do three things, and the first one I'm going to do for you. <laughs> I'm going to take care of this one because I want you to trust me. Please trust me. So the second thing that he asked for is, don't leave any until the morning. Don't leave any till the morning. Don't freak out and think, oh my God, what if it's like sunny tomorrow morning and there's no dew and no manna and I'm going to be hungry all day? You see it? What he's saying is, trust me. I'll provide for you every day. So what do people do? They did not listen. <laughs> To Moses or God. Some left part of it till the morning, you know, just to be safe. And it bred worms and stank. And of course, Moses was like, what's wrong? Ah. <laughs> you see it? All right. So here's number three. Gather two times as much on the sixth day. Now, wait a minute. It's going to get rotten in the morning. We know that, right? But I don't want you to work on the Sabbath. Okay. Super important, kind of a sidebar, but really right in the heart of what we're doing right now. I, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if I ask for a show of hands, there's going to be 20% of the room, maybe, that does Sabbath. 
everything I'm talking today, about today, about getting to know who God is, would be mostly resolved if you actually took a Sabbath, which is to say if you actually trusted God for a day, when instead of being caught up in the rat race, as were the Israelites to where they never did get it, ever, instead of being caught up in these things and thinking this is the way things have got to work and it's going to get bad and I'm not going to have enough for Sunday and it's going to be, and, and all of the things that we think, if you will take one day of the week to stop letting the world tell you how it works and you'll reflect on what God has actually done. From creation to provision. Intimate provision. From the huge to the intimate. If you'd reflect on what he has done what he's doing, you would see the world different. You'd see God different. You'd see yourself different. It would set you right. This is what Sabbath does. It sets us right. God even says in the Ten Commandments, we'll do it next week, if somebody doesn't keep the Sabbath, kill them. Why? Because they're like a yeast. It's going to infect the whole lump with this busyness, worldliness. The world's trying to get on top of you and kill you. And what God is asking for is he's saying, don't let it. And all you got to do is trust me. One day, don't freak out. <laughs> the rest of the days, you're not supposed to be freaking out. It'll help you not freak out if you take a Sabbath. But bottom line, on this day, reflect on the Lord. Understand who he is. Rejoice in his creation and you in it. We got it? Well, like I say... It's not supposed to keep for that day. By the way, you do realize that at the end of this time, Moses says, just to show future generations this manna stuff, put some in a jar and keep it. And it doesn't just last for two days. It lasts for, uh, we don't know how long until they finally didn't have it anymore. But it was manna that kept. So there's something really funky going on with this manna stuff. Okay? It's really amazing stuff. So what happens is some of the people went out anyway on the seventh day and they found no food. So not only did it not rot and stink and get worms, but there wasn't any. <laughs> On the seventh day, the Lord spoke to Moses, how long are these people going to refuse to obey my commands and instructions? Again, let me paraphrase. How long are these people not going to know who I am? What's it going to take? Remember, he did that with the people just recently, the Egyptians. What's it going to take? And it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, didn't it? Okay. I've heard the Israelites' complaints. Now tell them. This is back into the passage. I've heard the Israelites' complaints. Now tell them. In the evening, you will have meat to eat. So it's not just manna. It's also quail. And I just saw some, I was doing some research on all of this, and there were some factoids about it. Do you know how much quail has to fly over a camp in order to feed two to three million people? Okay. And then it happens every single day. Wow. In the evening you'll have meat to eat. In the morning you'll have bread that you want. Then, let me paraphrase again. Let me add a phrase. Then surely, by that time you'll actually know who I really am, right? See? Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening vast numbers of quail flew over and covered the camp. And the next morning the area around the camp was, was wet with dew. And when the dew evaporated, flaky substances fine as frost blanketed the ground. So here we go. Okay? Here's the truth. I already said it. Despite what God did and despite what God continued to do, the Israelites never 
got it ever in their history. The very next thing they do, they go to a camp at the Lord's command. They go camp, and there was no water. They're not going camping, but, you know, they stopped. And there was no water there for the people to drink. So once more, the people complained against Moses. Watch this. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us? Over and over and over, the God who saved them is being accused to be the one who would kill them. <laughs> Our children are livestock with thirst. This is Exodus 17. At basically, not quite, but close to the end of all of their wanderings. So they've had a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night leading them every day. And they they didn't get into Egypt, Israel the first time, so they ended up wandering around and so on. But God provided for them the manna and the quail every day for 40 years. In fact, other miracles like shoes. Their shoes didn't wear out. It wasn't until they got into the land that they had to start making shoes again. Two to three million people whose shoes didn't wear out for 40 years. But by Numbers 20, towards the end of Moses' life, right before they go into the land, in the first month of the year, the whole community of Israel arrived in the wilderness of Zin. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And they camped at this place called Kadesh, and there was no water for the people to drink at that place. So surely at this point in time, they knew who God was, and they didn't complain. They asked God what to do instead. (laughs) Instead, what they did is they rebelled against Moses and Aaron, and the people blamed Moses and said, if only we had died in the Lord's presence with our brothers why have you brought this congregation to the Lord's people in this wilderness to die along with all our livestock? Why did you make us leave Egypt, always wanting to go back to bondage and bring us here to this terrible place? This land has no grain, no figs, no grapes, no pomegranates, no water to drink. Now, do remember something. They're in the wilderness because God tried to take them to a land that exactly had grain and figs and grapes so heavy that they bent the bow of the sticks between the two people that had to carry the bunch. That's how much there was in the land of Israel that God was trying to take them directly to. But they didn't go in because they didn't trust God. There were giants in there. We're going to be killed. (laughs) So there we go. You know, yeah, the wilderness didn't have that. So poor me, God is providing everyday quail and everyday manna. And at this point in time here too, water from a rock. This is another story that is a great sermon all by itself because the first time he was to strike it, remember? Jesus is stricken on the cross. But the second time he's to speak to it. Jesus has died once for all and now all we need to do is ask. But Moses makes a mistake and strikes it and that's a whole other sermon. We're not going into it. But do you get the drift? They never get it. And it's not just to hear that they don't get it. By the time Jesus shows up, they still don't get it. They have a relationship with God, kind of what they really have is a relationship with his law. That's who they are when Jesus shows up. And the Pharisees are not, they don't really understand who God is at all, and the Sadducees are just off in some totally lost corner. At least the Pharisees are trying, but they have misunderstood God completely, and they've made him out to be a God of rules. They never get it. They never get it. They never get it, at which point you should be saying, thank you, God, for not giving up on them, because the truth is, the fact is, Israel never gets it right, and what makes us think we will? (laughs) 
the story that God is telling us to the Israelites who never get it and he never gives up on them is that we never get it, but he never gives up on us. You see right there? You see what we just did? Do you know who God is? Because you could have taken that as they never get it and why didn't he just kill them and, you know, what hope is there for us and everything else. But here's the real story when you understand that God is love. The real story is that God is showing us that even though you won't get it, I do. And I will. And I'm doing things for you, like, say, Jesus on the cross. See it? The fact is, we have been made new, though. We Christians, we have something different than the Jewish people is, have. We've been born again. We have a new nature in us. And we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, not just our conscience. He's inside of us, guiding us, helping us, leading us doing all this kind of stuff, right? So we do have a huge leg up, and the truth is we do live a markedly different life than they did who didn't have being made new and the Holy Spirit to lead. We are much better off. Here's the way Jesus said it. Even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater. You see that? We have a great advantage because we have been made new and have the Holy Spirit inside. But we are still prone to error, Right? So let me return and show you how, show you an example of how. Again, I don't want a show of hands, but if I were to ask how many people in here have dealt with divorce, it's, is it half, close to probably, somewhere in that, in this sitting in this room right now, I've had to deal with this. If we include your parents, then... You know, maybe we're down to 20% haven't. So this is a huge thing, right? Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to see what Christianity does with what God says because they interpret it wrongly. They understand it wrongly. They don't understand who he is, so they don't understand what he's actually saying. Watch. If you walk into, a, if you walk into and trust me, I have heard this and been a part of oh, this is a this is a tough thing for me i'm not this isn't a thing about divorce or marriage or anything else but this is an example of something that's just huge in our world so huge we don't even hardly think about it anymore and the fact of the matter is how many people have i heard when they come in and they say they are in this really really devastatingly difficult marriage it's just horrible. And somebody will say to them, God says you can't get divorced. And so then they don't get divorced. And I'm not, I will not argue for divorce. You're going to see that in a second ever. But I'm going to argue for something different than what we typically think. But just saying this right now, when somebody says that, I always say something back to them. I say, God hates your bad marriage much more than you do. He intended your marriage to evidence what two people coming together as one and getting to a place of oneness that world, marriage is tough, right? Two people, tough. Two people trying to be intimate, tough. Really tough. For the long haul, super tough. This is very, very hard. And God is trying to do something in Christian marriages where people see people together for long periods of time that are crazy about each other. 
that love each other, that respect each other, that honor one another, that prefer the other above themselves, that do this thing that is so wonderful that people who are struggling with intimacy, not just in their marriage, but in the world, would look at it and say, oh, there's life in it. There's life in you. There's life in this thing. I want that. Where, how did you get that? Well, I tell you how I got it. This Holy Spirit, you know, he made me new. Jesus made me new. And this Holy Spirit came in here and he led me and he showed me. I was a schmuck. <laughs> and that I needed to change. And he changed me in ways I could have never done. And we came together. And now we're like, now we're to this place that makes any love we ever had before seem superficial compared to the one we've got. Even though that was wonderful and life-giving and beautiful itself. God wants to take you to places that you do not know. That's the problem with us thinking we know better because we only get what we know. God's going to take us to places we've never even thought of, haven't even imagined. That's what life is. That's what marriage is. Two or three times, I've told you before, Julie and I had a very difficult place in our marriage that was just horrible. And both of us bent our knee, got down on our, got down on our knees. We put our heads in a couch. And what we said to the Lord was, is we said, God, you've told us that we're not to get divorced, so we're not going to. But this is a disaster. This is horrible. This is not evidencing you. This is surely not what you wanted for us. You're not happy because we, quote unquote, didn't get a divorce. That doesn't make you happy. What makes you sad is the horrible situation that we're in. So we're coming to you and we're telling you, do whatever you got to do to change us. Key word right there. Do whatever you got to do to change us so that we can be what you intended us to be. We did it together. And I've told you before, each time, it wasn't instantaneous at all. It was months, years, until all of a sudden one day we looked at each other and I went, well, you're like the best thing God has ever done for me besides Jesus. And you're right there with him, honestly. It's extraordinary. I see you totally differently. I have become a different person because of you and because of what God did in us. You see it? Now, I want to say something here, just lovingly, because this is important. And I want you to understand that I understand something. There are people in this room that have done that or tried that with an ex-spouse or with a current spouse, and it hasn't come to fruition yet. What I can say is, is trust God. Trust God. Do not think that God is happy because you didn't get divorced. That's putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. You're getting it wrong in your heart. He's not happy that you didn't get divorced. That is not his goal. His goal is you becoming one with someone else and with them. That's what he's wanting you to go towards. Do you see it? Okay? I know I'm touching on some things. I hope I'm getting it right. You need to be praying for me that I get it right, okay? Because I'm, we're not done yet. Now watch this. People will use that scripture right there. And I, I'm telling you, in fundamentalist churches, this is still done every day, today. You cannot get married, because there it is right there. You can't get married, period. Right? Well, in Matthew, which is talking about the same thing that Jesus said, it says, and I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and makes someone else and marries somebody else commits adultery, got it, okay? And then watch this, unless the wife's been unfaithful. So wait a minute, it's not just, just, just boom, nothing but. 
There is something about what if the wife has committed adultery or the husband's committed adultery? What happens then? Let me say something real clearly. The, the problem with adultery is, is that what we're supposed to, marriage is a type for a relationship with God. What we're supposed to be is becoming one with God ever more so as he does this marriage type thing with us. But what ends up happening is, is that when we go to another God or when a spouse goes to another person, you've broken that connection, right? You've broken the intimacy. You've broken the, the, the umbilical cord between the two of you. See that? You've joined with another and God will not be married in a polyamorous way. He's not going to be married to you and the gods you serve or to you and the person that you love too. You see it? He's not going to do that. He's saying, I'm your hope. I'm the one that can do everything. So I want you with me and me alone. So the point is, is what he's saying is they broke that. Now let me say something. I can tell you people in this church that are here now or have been here that went through devastatingly difficult, adulterous things. And the end result of it was a marriage that was 100 times better, maybe not 100, but 10 times better easily than the marriage that they had before the adultery. Now there's other people who that was a break and they couldn't do it and they left and everything else. And Jesus is saying, you can do that. And here's what I want to say. In everything we ever do, here's what I want to say. This is the only thing you should ever hear from me if you're only going to hear one thing. Do whatever the Holy Spirit tells you to do. Make sure it's not your heart because your heart will tell you all kinds of stuff. Some God, some not. But what I am telling you is if the Lord tells you to stay, I can tell you stories of the most gruesome gruesome situations. Literally, a spouse, more than once I've heard this story, a spouse bringing their lover into their home and sleeping in their bed with the other spouse in the house. How do you make it through that? And I've seen it. But I've also seen other situations where a person will cheat and then cheat again and then cheat again and then cheat again and then cheat again and then cheat again. And I've seen all of this stuff. And what I'm telling you is, if you think that some, if you think there's some black and white rule about this thing, you're wrong. What there is is the God who loves you and who is asking you to just follow him, whatever he tells you to do. In those situations that were so gruesome, the spouses said the Lord told them to stay. There's a prophet, by the way, who went through a similar experience, if you remember that one. But I just want you to look at this for a second, and I want you to see, now I'm going to make it even worse for you. Watch this. Jesus replied, Moses, important, we'll get back to it, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God originally intended. Now, look how this is read by a certain way of reading Scripture. Here's how this read. Look, because you had hard hearts, Moses let you do it, but that's not what God intended, so you can't. Or there's another way of reading this. Sure, it's not what God originally intended, and he's holy. And God, understand what holiness is? Never, for, never, never get this wrong. Holiness means not us. But in its, okay, it's not quite right. We understand holiness because we understand that we do things our own way, not God's way. And when we do those things, we understand that God had a better way, and that was holy. God's way is holy. But think about this this way. God's holiness is not holy because whatever he does is holy. Like he couldn't go out and have an affair and still be holy because he's God and everything he does is holy. Do you understand? 
What God does is everything right. He does everything with everything understood, and he is always doing everything rightly and perfectly, and the whole of the biblical history is a proof text of that. God showing us that he was right in everything that he thought. The whole of creation, the heavenly host and the, and the world, is discovering that God is right about what he said, about what is holy, what is true, what is right, what is good, what's better. See it? So the point is, when you think about holiness and righteousness, I want you to understand what God's saying is, is I have a better way for you, and, and what you do is go your own way. And I don't do that. <laughs> Even Jesus, who is God, part of the Godhead, in the, in the garden at night, was praying so hard as drops of blood because he wanted the cup to pass from him. If Jesus had done what he wanted, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. See it? But he was saying, not my will, yours. That's what he's going after. <coughs> so holiness, holiness and righteousness. God is saying what God intended was that people would come together, experience what only he can do in bringing people together, making them one, and that the result of that would be glory. That's what he intended. And he can never say, that's not what I intended. Or he can never say, well, it didn't work out for you, so... But now watch what he does do. This is so important. God, help me get this out. Moses permitted, or permitted divorce only as a concession. Do you see what the concession is? You can read it as, see, it wasn't supposed to be that way, so you can't. Or you can read it as, God gave a concession. God knew how we were. God knew that we were hard-hearted. God knew that we were going to make each other miserable horrible. God knew that there would be things that would happen that were not his will at all, and he made a way out. Do you see it? There's two ways of reading it, right? One way is you can't, and the other way is, but God did make a concession. I'm not arguing for divorce. Don't misunderstand. I'm doing what God does. I'm holding on to two things at once, holiness and love, righteousness and mercy. Watch this. See, God knows our most deep, intimate needs, right? That's what we said earlier. That was the provision they made physically for us, right? Including the pain that we're in. It's not just physical needs that we have, food and clothing and water and bread. He made us to love him, and he knows that we get hurt. And so what he did is, so of course he's providing here too. Not just bread, water, and meat. It's a provision for our hearts too. What makes us think? But what makes you think that you're somehow past ever having a problem again? Because that's not what I do in my life. way that God wants it. Is that what you do? Because I'm not. And by the way, I'm in good company because that's what Paul says. Because Paul, in talking about all this, in the, I believe something, if you ramp everything in the gospel up, it comes to a climax, not in the gospels as we would think, it comes to a climax in the person that causes us to understand the whole of the old and the whole of the new, which is Paul in Romans. 
Romans is the pinnacle of the Bible. Everything after that is a denouement, which is to say it's the run out of the rest of it to show all of this. But it pinnacles, and, the, and, and Romans pinnacles at Romans 8, chapter 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. But in leading up to that moment, here is Paul as a Christian confessing something which a few Christians in this room will probably relate to on some level. I don't really understand myself for I want to do what is right. I really do, right? But I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Look, if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, that shows I agree with the law that it's good. And here's what he's saying. I know it's good because I have a new creation inside of me. I have the Holy Spirit telling me in, in what's good. And I really want that. I really want what he's telling me is good. That's what I really want. There's this other side of me, though, that's wanting something else. Me, my side, the other things, that, the old habits, the old cottonwood. If you know what I'm doing is wrong, that shows that I agree with the law that it's good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It's sin that's living in me. Now, Dana Carvey took that, made a great SNL skit about this, right? You know, the devil made me do it. And the problem is, is that there's some truth in that. There really is a thing inside of us. This is what Paul's saying right here. And I know that nothing good leaves in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. If I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing the wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. It's the old cottonwood nature. It's the fact that I'm a new creature who is, understand what sanctification means. Sanctification, we call it now, not yet. Now, what's sanctification mean? That's just a fancy word for saying becoming holy like God. And here's what he's saying. There's a now part of sanctification. Here's what it is. You have been made new. You have been given God's nature and you were born again. And that new nature that you have is God's nature and it cannot sin. That's what, Roman, that's what 1 John 4, 10 tells us. Okay? That new nature cannot sin. Now, is that your experience that you never sin anymore? It's because you don't understand yourself. There's a new part of you that sanctification-wise is now... And when you die, all the rest of it goes away, and what's left is the part that God made, and that cannot sin, and that is God, gives God's because it is God. Do you see it? But there's this other stuff still hanging around you until you die, until you're set free from this decaying body in every sense of that word. And this is what Paul is talking about. So he says it this way. I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Do you see it? He's talking both as a, how it was like before we were saved, where we were really in bondage to this, but he's also saying that after we get saved, there's still a problem with it. And what he does in, in chapters 8 and chapter 9, particularly chapter 8, he goes into this wonderful explanation of if you want to live, you've got the now part down, but if you want to live in the not yet, but you want to work towards holiness, follow the Holy Spirit. That's what he says in chapter 8. If you want to get it more and more right, follow the Holy Spirit. Okay? But this is the, this is the point. The thing that Paul is pointing out, or let me say it rightly, the thing that God had Paul vulnerably and transparently communicate to you and me is even he struggled. That should give you some something 
You see it? Look, remember when I said Moses? Look, look, that's a weird way to put it, isn't it? Moses permitted divorces against such your hard hearts. I kind of get it, but watch what Paul does with this thought. This is freaky. I command, this is Paul, I command the married, not I but the Lord. The Lord says this, a wife is not to leave her husband, a husband is not to leave his wife. Got it. We've been talking about it, we got it. But now watch what he says. But I, not the Lord, say. Now let's look at what he says and then let's come back to that, okay? But you see what he's doing? He's doing this. It's not God saying this, but I'm saying it. Well, then why are you saying it? Seriously. Why are you saying it? You don't have any right to say, well, God says this, but I say this. What's What's Paul doing here? We're coming right back to it. If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she's willing to live with him, he must not leave her. If a woman has an unbelieving husband, he's willing to live with her, she must not leave her husband. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. Wait a minute, I thought God was really big on this divorce thing. I thought that's what he cared about. I thought that's all he cared about. I thought that was the key. He wanted us not to get divorced. But right here, Paul is saying, that's not Paul saying, not necessarily God, but I want to argue with what that actually is. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. In fact, here's the one right here. God has called you to live in peace. Every person that's ever been in a rotten marriage sees that scripture and says, God's called me to live in peace. I'm not in peace. I'm out. That's a misuse of the scripture. But here's the truth. God did say he wants you to live in peace. I've already articulated what that means. It means living in the glory of what a marriage can be, even if you go through the valley of the shadow of death. On the other side of it comes a table prepared for you. But let's just say for a minute that you didn't make it all the way through the valley and you went ahead and got divorced. Is that the end? Are you forever a sinner? And are you forever not going to ever get what God wants for you? You're, from now on, here's what we all do no matter if it's divorce or if it's just some sin that you just are having trouble getting rid of or whatever. Here's what we all do in our minds. The sin that I do has disqualified me from being like in the inner circle of Christ. So he still loves me because he has grace and I still get to go to heaven. But like I wouldn't even want to be close to Christ because I'm such a sinner. I've been like, the rest of my life is going to be second best now. Whatever it is, that's how we think. You see it? Because we don't understand God. What's actually going on here? Jesus says Moses. Jesus refers to Moses saying it, not God. Paul says it's I, not God. But who are Jesus and, Paul, and Moses and Paul, who are they? What are they doing here? They're intercessors. Don't even read the rest of that just yet. In fact, let me go back. I want to show you something. Do you remember the story? We're going to get to it probably, but do you remember the story when Moses is up there in the mountain and God tells him that the people are down in the valley and that they've already given up on him and they've made a golden calf? And God says this to Moses, get out of my way, I'm going to kill them all. 
and I'll make a great nation of you. Because after all, Moses, you're so much better than they are. It's like the inferred kind of thing that we would think in our minds, right? Moses is better than them, right? What is Moses' response? If you kill them, take me first. What's he saying? I'm not different than them. I am them. Israel never got it. But Moses, right at the end of his life, strikes the rock twice. He didn't get it either. (laughs) When did we make, when did we not read the scripture? When did we not read the words of scripture properly and understand that the point that God was trying to make throughout it was that we have a problem and that we're in need of a savior? When did we think that just because we got saved, it meant we no longer had a problem and we no longer needed a savior? Some years ago, I said something that just I thought was just so important. What if a whole lot of Christians have spent a whole lot of their life in Christ trying to make it unnecessary for them to ever have a Savior? (laughs) You see it? Now, I'm not saying you don't try. I'm not saying you should just give up. We're going to see that in a second. Paul says people slanderously say that's what I'm saying. But he says, I'm not saying that in the least. Watch. Jesus, Moses, Paul, who are they? They're intercessors that God put there. Moses was the most humble man in all the world, which is why when God said, get out of my way, I'm going to kill them and make a great nation of you, he said no. (laughs) Because me and my ego, I'd say, sounds like a plan. You see it? I wouldn't make a good intercessor. You see it? What he's done is he's raised up the most humble man in all the earth to stand between the holiness and its demands and the love and what it demands in himself. He has raised up Jesus as an intercessor for us to stand between his holiness and the judgment that is due us. Moses to stand between God and the people that were sinning. Paul to stand between God and the people who are still sinning. Do you see it? God put them there. So when Paul says, look, God didn't say this because God can't say it's okay. Because that's not who he is. But here's what he does do. In his love and his mercy, he raises up. And I think I have the heart of God when I tell you. God desires you to live in peace. There's something more than living this thing pharisaically or legalistically. There's something about a relationship that he's trying to bring us into. Do you see it? It's beautiful, isn't it? And he's sparing us from what is due us because he's long-suffering. I hope this is doing to you what it does to me. He wants to express his heart, love, and mercy and his holiness and righteousness. That's who he is. He is completely holy and completely love. And those two things are at odds with one another all the time, and yet he does things that express both of them all the time. Holy. What's it mean? We've already looked at it. Separated, different than us. Who we are as sinners. Understand something. John is one of the closest people to Jesus. He's the youngest one. And it's like Jesus took him under his arm in a special way. John and Jesus had, I think, the most intimate relationship of all the disciples. I really do. And when John, in his old age, then sees Jesus in his glory as God, what happens to him? He falls down as though dead. 
because coming into his presence. You remember the story when they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant in and they're supposed to be carrying the Ark which has the commandments in it and other things, the, the, the Omar, the, the, the thing with the manna and so on. They're supposed to be carrying it on their shoulders because we're supposed to carry the things of God ourselves, not have an animal do it. That's why an animal can't ultimately die for our sins. They're supposed to be, we're supposed to be carrying the things of God on ourselves. But they, held, they put it on a donkey, and the donkey stumbles. And you can imagine the most holy people in all of Israel, the ones that were surrounding it, right? And what happens is the donkey stumbles, and in a way that makes perfect sense, a holy person reaches up to stabilize it so it doesn't fall and break. And he immediately turns to ashes. Because who we are in the presence of who he is disintegrates us. Isaiah says, I've seen the Lord. Oh, I'm undone. I'm going to die. Prophets say it all the time. I've seen the Lord. Oh my gosh, I'm going to die. The people seeing Moses' reflected face after he sees God, look into his face and they're so convicted in their souls, they say, cover your face because we can't take it. It's going to kill us. Just the reflection of God and his holiness. Man, the scripture is a beautiful thing. There is so much that God has revealed to his body in America about intimacy, grace, the depths of personal relationship. Can I tell you, this is, you know, you talk about exceptionalism, and that's a, mostly a political doctrine, but there is a way in which, there, I think there's a lot of ways in which America has been an exceptional example, which is not to say without its problems. But the point is, is there's been an exceptional thing that God has done in his kingdom through America. And that is America more than any place in the whole of the world. There were democracies before and there were this, but there was never, there's never been freedom like there was in America. There's never been the exaltation of the individual. The most radical words that have ever been written by a human being that didn't have to do, that weren't, I think these were inspired by God too, but I mean they're not scripture, are we the people. us, the individual, even around the world, most of the world today, you're part of a, you know, it's the greater good. You're not an individual. One of the reasons why people from around the world desire what America has, not all of the sin that we've become and so on, but, but desires the thing that we have is, I, I, I used to travel a lot more than I do now. And when I would travel, almost everywhere I went, people would, t once you got to be friends with them, they'd tell you things about yourself, you know, and your culture. And almost everywhere around the world, there's plenty of people around the world, you know this, everybody can tell an American, even if they're dressed perfectly. I would dress in the way that Belarusians would dress, for example. I knew what kind of shoes to wear, what kind of pants to wear, what kind of shirt to wear, and I was not trying to stand out. That's a bad thing to have happen there. And I was trying to stand there, and yet any Belarusian looking at me walk down the street could tell I was an American. How? Because I walked like everything was Okay. Like the world owed me something. <laughs> and the rest of the world walks like everything is not okay, and I need to keep my head down. Do you see it? Now that's that pride thing. Pride goeth before a fall. Who knows what's going to happen here? But the bottom line is what I'm trying to say to you is, is God did something extraordinary. God made you, and he made you, and he made you. And you don't have value because of, because of you. You have value because God said, I love you. I made you, and I love you, and I want to be with you, and I want to do something in you. And I have a plan for you that I prepared since before the foundations of the world. God is the one who gives each individual value. Do you see it? 
And that's what America did. It revealed this truth about God and his love for people all over the world that each person was important. Not just for what they could do for others in themselves. But, as always happens, as we got a great revelation, have we lost a genuine, full, overwhelming understanding of God's holiness? Now again, I'm, when I do this, I am doing a little countercultural battle here, right? I'm just about done. But I'm doing a little countercultural battle here right now. Because right now you have a whole lot of Christians who are saying, God told me to love them. That's all I'm going to do. I'm just loving them. Why are you getting in my face about me loving somebody who another Christian might say is making a choice in their life that is going to cause them to not be with him? And that's going to be the greatest tragedy of all. Can I say something? Uh, I just want to say something. It's become somewhat popular in conservative circles to make fun of LGBTQ as a word or as an as a, as a, as a identifier of self. Can I just say something? Please don't be one of those people that makes fun of it, calls it the alphabet people or things like that that people will say. Don't make fun of that. If, I don't make fun of people's names. When they come up and tell me a name, I don't make fun of their name. Why? Because it's rude. It's not respectful. If someone wants to label themselves LGBTQ, I may think that there's a problem with that, but I don't have to disrespect the human being. I don't have to make fun of their name, right? And if I do, what hope do I ever have of talking to them, engaging them in the things that I think are more important that they might not see and understand in their life? But you see, what we're failing at because I'm not just talking about how we're supposed to act towards LGBTQ or something. And I'm not just talking about marriage. What I'm talking about is we ourselves don't really know who God is. And in that, we are hurting ourselves. And we're impeding our ability to reach others. We're hurting ourselves and others. So we're going to do this last thing now to explain and to try and come to a deeper understanding right now, us as a people, before the Lord, we're going to try and do something that would help us know him better, richer, more fully, so that it changes how we think about everything. If you want to know how God feels about sin, the place to look is always the cross. The stripes that he bore were the stripes that were due us. And God never, in tolerant ways, said, you're sinning, but no problem. There was a problem. It separated us from him, and that's what it looks like. Jesus took upon himself every stripe, every rip, every gash, that was due our choices to separate ourselves. If you want to know what God thinks about sin, that's every single sin by every single person, no matter how big, no matter how small, every single sin being laid on one person. That's how he feels about it. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
I put Christ on that cross. If I'd have been the only person in the world that was doing this, it still would have been necessary for Jesus to do that. You see it? If you had never sinned, then you wouldn't need him. Anybody in here want to raise your hand on that one? I've never sinned, so I don't need him. But here's the extraordinary thing about that particularly gruesome image, and I did a gruesome image on it. But here's the thing about that. That's God. Who's taking the sin upon themselves? The one that I wronged. He's not putting it on me, but he's also not putting it on an animal, and he's not putting it on some third party. Poor sucker. That's God. He's taking it, and he's putting it on himself. So this is, when you look at that, you ought to see holiness. You ought to see how God really feels about sin. But you need to see something else too. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That one picture right there completely harmonizes all of God's holiness and righteousness and the problem with sin and all of his love and his mercy. That picture wraps it all up. It's called the atonement where we become at one with him, at one meant. When we become, at, we become one with him because of what God did for us by taking upon himself the very thing that we had done to him. <laughs> Christ died for the ones that put him on the cross. And that wasn't just the soldiers or the Jewish people. That's me, us. That's the most extraordinary thing of love that's ever been done. Right there in that one picture. Because all holiness, righteousness, and love and mercy is fulfilled. That harmonizes the two of them. But I'm going to just take it. We have to understand two things at every moment, therefore. His holiness, his righteousness, and his love and his mercy. I'm going to just skip over this. Well, I'm not going to skip over it. In Romans, he says, look. Some people, when Paul is trying to explain, Paul, who is a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he said, I live my life blameless. That doesn't mean he was saying he wasn't a sinner. But he was saying, I was trying to live right, and I was succeeding to an extraordinary degree, and more than all my peers, I was one that was getting it right in holiness. And then one day, God came and saved me, and he actually took me up to the third heaven, and I saw things that weren't even allowed to be spoken. And the bottom line is, is I learned about a God of love. I knew the God of rules. I knew the God of holiness. I knew the God of righteousness. But I came to know the God of love. And this is why Paul stands as such an important person in all of human history. Because Paul's the one who understanding that to a degree that few of us ever will, if anybody ever has as much, and the one who understands, therefore, his love in the most extraordinary fashion. And what he says is, he says, when I talk about this love of God to people who are holy Jewish people or being righteous in themselves and they're pharisaical and they're legalistic and they're doing all this kind of stuff, what they say about what I'm saying is, is they say, the more we sin, the better it is. That's what you're saying. You should say you should sin more so that God can grace you more. You should sin more so that you fall in love with God more. You should sin more. Look, that happens. When we sin more, we get more grace. Jesus himself said, the one who's been forgiven much loves more. <laughs> loves much. You see, it happens. It's true. But what Paul's saying is, how stupid to say what you should do is go out and sin so that you should come to know this. You should not separate yourself from the God who loves you so that you can come to love him more. 
This is a ridiculous concept. But he is trying to get something home to us. We have to understand something. God is the one who causes everything to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What does that mean? I hope it all of a sudden is starting to mean something more. Let me, let me try and tease it out a little bit. Here's what he's trying to say. I take the worst thing that could ever happen. This is a picture of God's creation killing their own creator. Is there anything by definition that could be worse than that? That's it. See it? But then he rose again. And he gave me the right to rise with him. And that's the best thing that could ever happen. But here's the key to it. Could the best thing that ever happened have happened if the worst thing hadn't? The answer is no. God causes all things to work together. That means I do something wrong and then God causes it to work out. And maybe I get second best or maybe I get something else. No, here's what God's saying about God causes all things to work together for good. Here's what he's saying. You do the worst thing that you could ever think of and God causes it to have a ministry for you that goes beyond anything that you could ever know. You don't get second place. You get double A first place. Does that mean we should go out and sin then in order to get that? Of course not. How stupid. But do you know God? Do you? Do you understand that when you sin, that what God has for you is overwhelming glory? In grace, in love, you have been forgiven much, loving much, and then entering into the ministry that God has made precisely because of your failure, if it wouldn't have ever come about if you hadn't failed? You see how this is so backwards? Paul, all the time, I, I always say this, if you don't preach Paul that sounds a little wrong, you're getting him wrong. You got to preach Paul in a way that sounds a little wrong, because other people were saying that same thing too. And the fact is, we have to come to a deeper understanding if the cross never happened, then there's no way to be with him eternally. We did the worst thing that could ever happen, and it made the best thing that ever happened happen because now we can be with him as one. Before we were just in the garden. You do realize heaven's better than the garden, right? And if it weren't for our fall and our Savior, we wouldn't have oneness in heaven with him. This is resurrection power. So I want you to do something right now. I want you to watch this. Are you good, Roger? I want you to watch this. This is going to be two different videos. But I want you to watch them in conjunction with one another and understand. Well, I think you'll get it. It is finished. That's what he said. icon is 
Because we in the Protestant, we don't do icons. Because we think that they're like idols. They're not. Here's what an icon is. It's a thing which we contemplate in order to bring us deeper into an understanding of who God really is. Now, people use it as idols and other things, so, but an icon properly understood is a thing that helps us to reflect more deeply upon who God is. And I want us to take a minute here. Uh, Pam, could you come up and just put a little music behind it? I want you to take a minute here, and I want you to use that image as an icon right now. And I want you to look at the cross and the resurrection. And I want you to let God start speaking to you about what that means in your life. Are you living in both the fullness of the cross and the fullness of the resurrection, all of the holiness and righteousness, all of the problem with sin being dealt with, and at the same time, the overwhelming victory that is to be had when we are risen again in Christ Jesus. Do you see it? Go ahead, just take a minute. sin and lay it by his feet. Bring your heartache. Lay it at his feet. Bring your hopes and your dreams. Lay it at his feet. Bring your marriages. asking you that you would teach your people who you are. You 
did it with the Israelites, you are surely doing that with us right now, and we don't necessarily see it. And I'm asking you in Jesus' holy and precious name to open our eyes to all the things that you're doing, to quit being so caught up in the things of life that we miss what's actually happening. Quicken us to see the things that you are doing, the moments that you are bringing, big and small, in order to reveal yourself to us. to your will, so I'm thanking you, because I know I have what I ask when I pray according to your will, and ask according to your will, and what I ask you for is, is I want to know you deeper, is that you, do you want to know him deeper, say that to him, I want to know you deeper, I want to know you richer, Trusting. 